Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or whenever you are joining me and tuning in to hear about one of the greatest hobbies in the world. I am your host, Zachary Anderson, and this is Your Turn, the podcast where I talk about board games, game mechanics, and other nerdy culture things. For all of my returning listeners, welcome back. And to those of you tuning in for the first time, welcome and please enjoy the episode. In this episode, I will be discussing one of the first things that I look for when it comes to buying a new game or something that sparks my attention when it comes to games. Because this topic is so crucial to the hobby and plays a major role in my partaking of the hobby, I will also be talking about two games that were brought to my table. One has become a favorite of mine, while the other... Well, I don't own the game anymore, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. Again, I want to say thank you for joining me, and let's get to the games. The board game jargon that we're going to be discussing today is theme, or thematic tie-in. Now, the definition is pretty simplistic and more just talks about theme in general, but the definition I found says a game's theme refers to the subject matter the game is built around. Now, all games have theme, even if it is just colored shapes. But along with theme comes how well the game's mechanics and gameplay is connected to this topic. Now, theme, in my opinion, can be a helpful thing and a hurtful thing. And I would like to start off with helpful. The purpose of board games is entertainment, it's enjoyment. Players should be having fun while sitting around the table, whether they are playing to defeat their opponents or are working together to accomplish some common goal. No matter what the objective is, the purpose is to have fun. Theme can play two different roles when it comes to bringing fun to a game and enjoyment to the table. First off, the theme can be the hook to grab a player's attention. If a person deeply loves science fiction movies or books where starships and laser guns are the status quo, they may not always jump at the opportunity to play a board game in which you are building a farm or growing vegetables. But if you bring out Xenoshift or Warpgate, both of which are based on science fiction ideas, you may find the player to be more interested. In the same way, I have experienced trying to bring new players to the table, and failing when I bring out a game with a less than exciting theme such as Catan, in which you are gathering resources to build roads and cities. Do not get me wrong, I love Catan, but the theme does not often make people jump for joy. Yet, when I tell my new players they would be gathering dinosaurs to build their own amusement park in Draftosaurus, I saw ears perk up and eyebrows raised, at the idea of dinos roaming the land. I particularly enjoy deeply thematic games. That is to say, a game where the theme is very strong and connected to gameplay. And this often is the second reason how theme can create fun. Because in these deeply thematic games, a player can be given the chance to roleplay and embrace their characters they are portraying. Games and theme that allow this style of play 
often have RPG elements within them, ranking up stats, gaining new items. Players are often only controlling one character instead of a large community. The theme and story is so strong within games like Mice and Mystics that players can fully envision themselves as Ness or Colin as they swing their blades against the insect opponents, flooding the enormous castle halls. I've seen players take on accents or mannerisms to better portray their characters, such as the game The Contender or Sheriff of Nottingham, and this is normally heightened because of the theme, leeching out of the game into the players, creating this atmosphere of fun. But as I said, theme can also be negative. Theme can be a detriment. Most often, it can be a negative, as some people simply do not like a specific theme, genre, or topic. Individuals who do not like war and violence probably do not want to play games like Blood Rage, or Warhammer Underground. The groups of people I have played games with are often open to many different game mechanics and styles of games. But when Millennium Blades hits the table and we are simulating buying trading cards and building decks like one would within Magic the Gathering, I see any shimmer of interest fade. And I know it is time to bring out something else. It doesn't matter that the theme is thick and the art is gorgeous on all the cards, the theme is actually too intense and creates a barrier that some players are not willing to cross. There is one other way that I can see theme as a distraction or a slight negative, and that is when the game pitches a glorious, creative, and unique theme you are stoked to play. Finally get the game to the table and the gameplay falls the cover of the box will look fabulous. The art on the cards and the tokens blow your mind. The story built by the flavor text is jaw-dropping. And then the game turns out to be collecting cubes that really don't mean anything. And then you turn them in for victory points. I'll be discussing a game a little bit later in this episode that pulled this exact trick on me. And that was after years of it sitting on my shelf. I'm going to take a big risk as to what I'm about to say, and to those of you that love Magic the Gathering, I apologize. But that game is one that has snagged my attention many times throughout my life, with the fascinating art and the idea of being a wizard and dueling your opponent with spells and minions, and yet each time I have sat down at a table to play, which I haven't done in years, I am left with such disappointment as I feel like the art and the theme has next to nothing to do with what I'm actually doing. And I might as well simply have solid colored cards with numbers on them. Over the years, I've had friends try to explain the attraction of building decks and building an engine that is unstoppable. But when I look at magic cards, I am now left with an empty hole of disappointment, as well as a thought as I could probably use some of this artwork in a fantasy RPG like Dungeons & Dragons. After all my experiences within this community, I still fall victim to pasted on themes, and will buy games because the art is pretty. But for every mediocre or bad game I buy, there are 
two to three amazing games with the same theme that bring me elation and joy. Normally, I try to give some recommendations for games connected to this mechanic. But because theme is so based on personal preference, I am unable to suggest one theme over another because your tastes may differ from mine. And you know what? That's okay. We are allowed to like different things. For me, I love games with high fantasy or Cthulhu-esque horror. And frankly, any game where I am jumping headfirst into a dungeon. There are games about stock markets, about different sports, the culinary industry, and even bird watching. There's one game about growing trees. If you are looking for a game to play that matches your interests or hobbies, I guarantee there's one out there for you. Now, let's get to some games. The first game I would like to be discussing is Arkham Horror 3rd Edition. This game was published by Fantasy Flight Games and was designed by Nikki Valens. The art was done by Justin Adams, W.T. Arnold, and Anders Finner. It was published in 2018. It plays between 1 and 6 players, and gameplay normally does last between 2 to 3 hours. Let's talk about how to play. When it comes to setting up for a session of Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, which I will be referring to as simply Arkham Horror from here on in, the basics are the same, but the monsters, map, and overall objectives are always different. To start, the players will choose a scenario to attempt, of which there are four in the core box with more in each expansion. The scenario will tell you which tiles to use when building the module board, which monsters to use for the monster pool, and what cards from the codex to begin on the table. The scenario sheet will also tell you which tokens to place in the dreaded mythos bag, which will be used to cause the player's grief and overall stress as the game goes on. Beware, it can read your mind. Finally, players will find scenario-specific encounter cards, which will be used when adding clues or doom to the board, as well as indicated which neighborhood has an outbreak when the token is pulled from the Mythos bag. Once players have built the map, they will need to find the encounter cards for each of the corresponding neighborhoods being used for the map. Don't worry, they are both labeled and color-coded, for easy setup. Now it is time for players to choose which investigators they want to play during the scenario. Normally players can simply look through the characters and choose which one they want to play, but I would actually recommend you deal two investigators to each player and have them choose of those two options. Each investigator has a unique special ability, a specific number of health and sanity points, encouraged roles they should focus on during the campaign, such as killing monsters or finding clues. They have a predetermined starting equipment, of which one item is chosen from two. And finally, they have ability scores broken into five categories. Lore, which will help you clear doom. Influence, which will help you get allies or cash. Observation, which helps you move clues to objectives. Strength, which helps you punch Cthulhu in the face. And Will, which helps you keep from going crazy and, and also allowing you to use some fun spells. After players have chosen their investigators, 
Their standees are placed on the starting area, denoted by the scenario sheet, and it is time for chaos and terror to rain down on the streets of Arkham. Time to run. The game is played over a number of rounds until the scenario objective is achieved and the codex cards alert the players they have won or the codex cards tell the players they have lost and one of the ancient ones returns to conquer the world. Each round of play is broken into four phases, which I'm going to very briefly cover. Phase one is the player phase. During the player phase, each player takes a turn consisting of two distinct actions. You have to take two different ones. These include moving. The player may move up to two adjacent spaces, but may pay up to $2 to move additional spaces. Ward. The player will make a lore test, which means you roll a number of dice equal to your lore stat, and for each success, you remove a doom token. Successes are rolling fives and sixes on dice. A player can attack. This means they will engage with a monster in their space, make a strength check, and for each success rolled, they deal one damage. Players can evade. This is their attempt to disengage with a monster who is already attacking them by making an observation check. One important thing to know about evasion is if you are successful and you only need one success, you get a free action. Also, when you are engaged with a monster, all you can do is attack, evade, or focus. And when a player focuses, they take a focus token related to a specific stat of their choice, and this gives them a plus one die when doing a test using that stat. A player can gather resources. This simply means the player takes a dollar from the bank. A player can research. The player makes an observation test, again rolling dice, and for each success, they move a clue from their character sheet to the scenario sheet. Players can trade, in which a player will trade items, allies, clues, remnants with all other players in their space. Finally, certain components, such as allies or items, will have actions that players can take. Once each player has taken two actions, the monster phase begins, in which non-exhausted monsters move, deal a set amount of health or sanity damage as denoted by their cards, and then any exhausted monsters prepare for the next round. Now it is time for encounters. As long as a player is not engaged with a monster, they will experience an encounter. Another player at the table will draw the top card from the encounter deck for the corresponding neighborhood and read the text for the specific area the player is in. Encounters normally include tests of some sort and can grant players items, money, allies, clues, remnants, etc. But if you fail a test, you can take damage or even receive a negative condition. Finally, it is time for the Mythos phase. Each player will draw two tokens from the Mythos bag, and these tokens will do one of many different things. From adding doom to locations, adding clues to neighborhoods, adding monsters, causing an outburst of doom in an area, causing the in-game newspaper to create chaos, or in some, some very rare cases, do nothing. And you're safe.
Play continues through these rounds until players are either, again, told by the codex cards they won or they lost. If a player is killed, either by taking health or sanity damage equal to their limit, they will be discarded, along with all their items, allies, tokens, and they'll choose a new investigator to join the team. Also, when a player dies, they add a doom token to the scenario sheet, bringing players closer to defeat. Stop the presses! Cultists are running wild within the street! Grotesque creatures from beyond the veil are flooding the docks! A tear in space and time opened in downtown! And a deluge of monstrous beings are ripping civilians to shreds! And oh yeah, someone stole Ashcan Pete's guitar and Wendy's amulet! Be on the lookout, folks! Earlier this episode, I discussed how the theme of a game can make the players truly feel as though they are part of the world they are experiencing. And Arkham Horror has theme all over it. The combination of story within the encounter cards, the codex, and the scenario sheet truly make the players feel like they are walking the streets of Arkham and are fighting for not only their lives and sanity, but also the safety of the world. I first played this game two years ago at Arkham Knights, and within the span of two days, I must have played the demo scenario 10 or 12 times, losing every time. But the environment built by the game and the immersion created by the simple mechanics of rolling dice and drawing cards made me return to the table again and again and again. Originally, I thought my enjoyment of the game was dependent on being around other Cthulhu and Lovecraft fans. But I have played the game on numerous occasions since then, usually solo. And I have been enamored with the systems and the stories ever since. Each time I draw the newspaper token from the Mythos deck, I still read the cards with a pseudo-1920s radio broadcaster's voice and pretend to have the swagger of Gatsby as I run away from the latest deep one coming down the street to uh, eat my face. From turn one, this game is building tension. As normally at the start, you're not really sure what you need to do to win, you can safely assume you want to gather clues, but it isn't until later in the game that the story opens up and you realize how up a creek you are. And even though you've killed off all the cultists and the monsters and received five clues, you still need to do more work. In talking with fellow players, it is often agreed upon that as you play, you are always wanting to do more. Wanting to take one extra action in order to give yourself a leg up over the impending doom. But the game designers knew what they were doing and knew that by forcing the player to make hard choices and having to decide between two equally messy plans, they could build horror and the theme would fully engulf the players. I need to let you in on a little secret that my friends and family know all too well, and that is that I, Zachary Anderson, have a very vivid imagination, which makes horror movies, shows, pictures, horror theme in general, awful. Whenever I watch something even remotely spooky, I have to watch something lighthearted immediately afterwards in order to keep my brain from thinking a werewolf is going to pop out of my shoe and eat my face. 
You needed to know this because theoretically, I should absolutely hate Arkham Horror and the entire Cthulhu mythos. Because let's face it, those creepy monsters and cultists come from everywhere. And not even your own living room is safe from ghouls and beings from beyond this dimension who want to turn your body into the next meal. Yet, I love not only this game, but all the games that I have played set in this universe. I love the imagery created as I play the drifter Ashcan Pete and his trusty companion Duke, battling back the deep ones who wish to cause chaos and death. I revel as the ex-cultist Diana Stanley is outfitted with a shotgun, which she has no right holding, or I cast spells as Wendy Adams clutching her mother's amulet to her chest as the Denzians of the Silver Twilight Lodge attempt to breach a portal into realities unknown. Am I terrified at the horrific scenes painted in my head? Yes. Do I have nightmares about flying beasts wanting to feast on my soul? Duh. But this game puts me in the shoes of the heroes, though some more likely than others, and I am able to fight back against nearly insurmountable odds. And guess what? Sometimes I win. Sometimes. In my very first episode, I spoke about Arkham Horror the card game and mentioned the Mythos bag and how cruel the tokens could be. As it would seem, you always drew the single token you knew that would make you fail. Luckily, in Arkham Horror, you do not have to draw a token from a bag to pass a test. Nope. Instead, you roll the most vindictive creation known to man. Dice. As I mentioned earlier, you have to roll a 5 or a 6 to pass a skill test. Unless you're Rex Murphy, but that dude's just cursed. I swear, the luck gods never look kindly upon my dice rolls. As I'll roll five dice. One of them has to show a five or a six, and yet three come up as ones. There's a single two and a four. And oh look, I failed, and now the star spawn is ripping into pieces. Yay! <sighs> but fear not, investigators. There's still the Mythos Cup, or the Mythos Bag. But now, the tokens you draw will only add doom. Or monsters, or create a rumor in the headlines, or look, now there's a doom burst in the merchant district, which opened up a rift in time, and the hounds of Tindalos are flooding the streets. Today is a good day. Yeah. Fun times, right? Fun times. Please do not take my sarcasm or sadness as negative. The rolling of the dice and the drawing of the Mythos tokens merely heightens how much I love this game and continues to draw me back to the table time and time again. I have lost this game far more times than I have won. I have been trounced by cultists, squashed by Cthulhu, had my brain dissolved by the ancient being as a thought, but each time my team fails, I find a new crew of ragamuffins to band together and plunge headlong into the fight to die again. There's a lot going on in this game. A decent amount of things to keep track of, but I would still recommend this wonderful game if you are looking for something within this genre. If you are looking for a tough co-op game that will give you multiple scenarios to play and attempt to perfect, Arkham Horror 3rd Edition would be a great addition 
to your table. Now, before I move on, I might want to suggest uh, you run. The Abyssal Servant was seen down the street circling the sky looking for its next meal. Um, I'm going to hide under my desk. You might want to take off down the street. Good luck! On to our next game. My next game is called Grimslingers. This game was published by Greenbrier Games, designed by Stephen Gibson, with art done by Stephen Gibson. It was published in 2015. It plays between 1 and 6 players, and plays in between 15 and 90 minutes. I'm going to do my best to give a half-decent explanation of this game, but I'm going to be upfront with you on this one, folks. This game is very complex for what it boils down to. So, I'm going to be giving the very abridged version of rules for the complete rule set with details about EP, energy points, FX, card effects, and excruciating details about how to resolve face-offs and timings and numbers and such. The rulebook is available to download online. To start, each player selects a character, an anima, and takes a HP tracker for themselves and an EP tracker for their anima. Players will also take six spell cards, fire, earth, water, ice, wind, and lightning. Lastly, players will choose a color and take the targeting cards with their colors on one side and the colors of their opponents on the other. Players will set up their player area with a discard spot, a deactivation spot, as well as their HP and EP meters. Now, the game begins. The game plays over a number of rounds and each round is broken into three phases. First, there's the standoff phase. During the standoff phase, Players will sacrifice HP for EP and can use special abilities. The second phase is the draw phase. Each player will select a card from their hand and place it face down. Once all players have a card face down, the players call draw and their cards are flipped over. The third phase is aftermath. Now, Players go through an overly complex procedure to figure out whose card triggers first. And if you're hit, your card doesn't go off, but you take damage. If there are at least two players still alive at the end of the aftermath phase, a new round begins. I realize that this is not a great explanation of the rules, but as I said, the rulebook is overly complex for a simple who-has-the-higher-number game. I almost forgot. There's a co-op, semi-choose-your-own-adventure variant where players work together to overcome a programmed enemy and explore the world this game is set in. There's your rules. Hear me out. Okay. Imagine you're in the Old West. Cowboys and tumbleweeds are an everyday occurrence in your life. Your closest companion is the robotic anima that floats beside you and grants you powers when the mutated creatures of the land come to attack, or you provoke them. As you travel across rough terrain, your body fills with the unknown force, giving you powers unlike anything you've ever experienced, granting you the ability to send projectiles of earthly elements at those who oppose you. 
You are seeking answers to questions you dare not speak and yearn to learn how the gods or demons bore these gifts upon mortal beings such as yourself. This theme and setting sound amazing. I would love to inhabit this world and experience the oddities filling the space. Given the opportunity, I would read books, watch movies or shows, even play games set within this world. It seems absolutely mind-blowing, the mix of genres and ideas. Unfortunately, Grim Slingers fall short of bringing these concepts and themes to life. The art fights to bring the world across to the players, and honestly, the art is the best part of this game. Art on the player and anima cards is absolutely gorgeous, while the details upon the monster cards evoke terror and create nightmares. Unfortunately, I am unable to show examples of the artwork because this is a purely audio medium. But know that one of the available characters to choose from is a cat with a pistol holster. There's another character that is a chicken wearing a wizard's hat. I cannot do the art justice on this episode. But in this wonderful age of technology, it is quite easy to find images of this game online. Now, you may be sitting there or walking there or running there, whatever you're doing while listening to me ramble on or thinking, but Zach, art is not the only thing that can make theme come to life within a game. There is writing as well. And you know what? You're right. And this game does have a campaign you can play through and hear a rather interesting story. I played the campaign for close to four hours as I tried to see past the subpar game mechanics. And as much as I wanted to keep going and find out how the story ended, I couldn't. When it comes to buying board games, the first thing to catch a person's attention is the box and the theme. And Grimstingers had its hooks in me the first time I saw the artwork. Sadly, this proved to be a major letdown, and this helped prove to me that sometimes an amazing theme or beautiful art can be hiding a deep, dark secret that the game is really just not very good. Grimslinger sat on my shelf for years after I bought it because I did not have anyone who wanted to try it out with me. So in the end, I decided to play the campaign solo, and then I could potentially upsell the game to friends and they would want to play it. But after reading the confusing rules, starting and stopping my first play multiple times, and watching videos online, I came to a realization. Grimslingers is merely a pretty coat of paint on a game whose sole mechanism is the equivalent to rock, paper, scissors, and war. Every turn of the card became who played the higher number, or who threw out the weakness to someone else? And then you took damage and lose your turn. In the campaign, you have the chance to upgrade your cards and get better spells. But the AI always had better cards. And it became a slog to even play the first scenario. Sad news, listeners. Even after seeing how bad this game was, I refused to give up. And told myself it had to get better. The world is so interesting and the art is breathtaking, it had to get better. Yeah, it never did. My students and friends hate whenever I say, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. And that's how I feel about this game. I'm not mad that it isn't the game for me. I'm not mad that the gameplay is terrible. Well, I'm a little mad about that. 
but I am far more disappointed that, that I had such high hopes. There are reviews and comments on BGG, Board Game Geek, about how amazing this game is, and how the world is so rich and fleshed out. And to anyone who enjoys this game, I am sorry for being so negative about something you love, but Grimslingers just does not work for me. The theme is cool, the art is fascinating, yet with such lackluster mechanisms, Rock, Paper, Scissors is just not fun. I cannot recommend this game to anyone. If you still want to seek this game out and give it a try, I can't stop you. Though this is one experience I don't want to have again. I miss the world of Grimslingers. You know, maybe I will try to make my own module setting in Dungeons & Dragons. Maybe then I'll be able to get back. And here we are. Another end to another episode. Two games, two themes, and a world of difference between them. One I adore and I cannot wait to play again. While the other, I cannot even post a picture of because I got rid of it. Theme does not always make a game great. I have played games without themes and loved them just as much. But when a game's theme is so closely tied to the gameplay and the emotion experienced by the players, games truly sing. But beware. A theme can also cover a terrible secret, and you may not realize how bad the game is until it is too late. There is a theme out there for everyone. You just gotta be willing to put in the work and, let's face it, play some bad ones. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to like this episode and listen to others that I've posted, as well as check out pictures and updates I post over on my Instagram at z.a.underscoreyourturn. Feel free to drop me a line or a comment, leave me a review, and let me know what games you have been playing or are interested in hearing about. It has been a pleasure talking to you about these games. One great, one not so great. And I will be back in a few weeks with another episode. As always, I have been your host, Zachary Anderson, and this has been your turn. And now, it is your turn to play some games, have some fun, be safe, and have a good one, y'all.